you know, the amount of determination that I saw in our house growing up was at such a high level that I really think that even if I was being bullied or teased or anything, that when I would come home, I was in an environment where I had a family around me that was supremely proud of, of whatever I was doing. As long as it was positive, and as long as it was something that was pursuit was a pursuit of, of some sort of high level of excellence. Good afternoon, my name is Dante Rameau, and I'm the co-founder and chief executive officer of the Atlanta Music Project. Welcome to The Next Movement, the Atlanta Music Project's podcast, where we interview today's artistic luminaries. And I'm very, very excited because today we have two of the great classical musicians in the world with us today, Anthony and Damari McGill. Gentlemen, welcome to The Next Movement. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. So how are you guys coping? All of a sudden you guys are, you guys are going along, you're playing for thousands of people in your, in your respective jobs. Um, Anthony, you're the first clarinet of the New York Philharmonic and Damari, you're the first flute of the Seattle Symphony. You're playing for thousands a week and all of a sudden COVID-19 hits. How are you guys dealing with this? Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I forget know. there's we're, two of you, so it was we're both looking at each other. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah I think um, at first it was a, a pretty big shock, um, just kind of going from, um, like you said, just a lot of concerts and um, tons of concerts being canceled almost immediately, and also the the fear factor, just not knowing what was going on what my health was going to be like, what my friend's health and family, just thinking about everybody going through this and everyone I don't know. So that, that was the really hard shock for me at first. Um, but, you know, that was, feels like a year ago now. It was just a few months ago. But, you know, I think things are, things are better. Things are, you know, evening, evening out. At least I'm getting used to the type of schedules now I have. Yeah, it was, about you? of course it was shocking. It was shocking for me for everyone, everyone in the world. Um, Anthony and I, and I were actually on, on tour like right before um, at least my musical world shut down, you know. With your trio? With the trio, the McGill McHale trio. After the tour, I went um, to Cincinnati to teach a couple of days and was planning on, you know, hurrying back home to, to rehearse with the orchestra and that never happened. You know, um, so for everyone, it's it was it was it was shocking, but you you adjust and you and 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 you make the the best out of any situation, and that's what I'm trying to do. Yes, I, I commend you for it. I know for for orchestras and any performing organization that relies on uh, big audiences to perform their craft. I mean, I know this is a, a tough time, even for us at the Atlanta Music Project. We've had to stop all of our in-person programming, canceled some dozens of concerts. And so, yeah, I, 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 feel, the, uh, I feel your pain, but um, hopefully, uh, you know, we'll have a solution for everybody in the future. Um, 
Anthony, you're the principal clarinet of the New York Philharmonic, as I was saying. You're the first African-American principal of that orchestra since its founding in 1842. Bro, that's over almost 200 years. Damari, you're the principal clarinet, principal flute, sorry, of the Seattle Symphony. Uh, I, I assume that you're the first African-American principal wind player or, or any player of the Seattle Symphony? Um, wind player, for sure. We had a, a, a wonderful uh, principal timpanist for many years in the orchestra. So I'm happy to say that I'm the second. Second, yeah. Happy to say that, actually. Absolutely, absolutely. So I wish I, wish I was like, I don't know, the hundredth, but yeah. That's right. That's right. So what's that experience been like for each of you? Uh, Damari, since you're the older brother, we're going to start with you on this one. <laughs> well, um, it's important. I'm fully, uh, fully aware of that. Um, <laughs> no, I, I don't take that responsibility lightly at, at, at all. Uh, I'm fully aware that when anyone in the audience is looking at the orchestra, they can, they can see me and, they, and then they notice me. And I'm also fully aware that if there happens to be, you know, a, a young person of color that sees me, that um, it could actually, that, that could, experience could have an important impact on their, on their existence, possibly. So, um, it is a big deal, and I look forward to the time when it's actually not such a big deal. Anthony, the, 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 the first in, in a long time for the, the New York Philharmonic. Uh, big job, big orchestra, uh, like Seattle. The first orchestra in the United States, right? The oldest one. Yeah, I think it is. What's, what's it been like for you? Yeah, I mean, it's... Um... It's really, it's interesting because um, in my orchestra, we've had a few um, black members. Um, the most recent was Jerome Ashby, who yeah, was French the horn associate, associate principal horn player and um, who, who passed um, a few years before I joined the orchestra, but I knew, I knew him. He was a teacher um, at Curtis and Juilliard and I had friends who studied with him. And, and so um, when I was coming up in college, I knew about him and he was kind of a role model for me. And, and so I think like my brother, I wish it wasn't the case. I wish it was, um, very, the history of it was very different. Um, but you know, we just, we, we, we just go ahead and, and, and forge ahead and try to do our best at all times. I mean, that's the, po that's the point of what we do as musicians is trying to, trying to set a really high standard and um, and, you know, I think it is important to make sure that, of course, by our presence, we're representing, you know, but also by our presence, you know, out in the community whenever we can, and at schools, whatever we can, or if kids come to concerts, we represent no matter what. And so to understand that importance, I think, is, is really important. And Anthony, do you, do you, and this is for Damari as well, do you guys feel um, pressure in your position to be role models for young African-American music students? I don't. Or, or, or do you just kind of go, go on with your life and just try to play the best you can? Or is it always, or do you always feel a certain weight? I don't, I, I don't feel it as pressure um, 
at 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 all. Um, it's it's just a certain oh, oh, it's awareness, but um, you know, regardless of 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 anything. I mean, I'm I'm always trying to do the best that I can. Um, if we want to use the word you know, represent again, I'm always trying to represent the, the best version of myself uh, while being aware that, um, you know, the better I, the better I do, it's possible that my, those actions will uh, make it a little bit easier for the next generation. Un unfortunately, I mean, people do say, you know, that, um, you know, um, if you're a person of color, you have to you have to be you know ten times ten times as good. Um, just so happens that I'm trying to be ten times as good anyway. Right. So I don't feel that I don't feel that pressure. So the two of you, uh, barely into your forties, you you've already had incredible careers in orchestras, chamber music, soloists. Okay, all right. So what was in the McGill family household growing up? Uh, were your parents like tiger parents pushing you towards excellence? Maybe um, you both just have the right combination of talent, dedication, and support. Uh, what elements from your upbringing do you think contributed to your success as musicians? Anthony? I think uh, one person is right here on this, on this uh, talk with us, my brother. Damari, and two other people, our parents, uh, Damari and Ira. And um, those, those are the reasons why, for sure that I know that um, we are where we are today. And um, it was because of, um, you know, our parents were very artistic people and they were very, um, very successful and driven people in their um, perspective. Uh, fields and pursuits. And I think it gave us a sense of um, always, you know, attempting, you know, what you want to do, attempting your passions, going for, you know, what you want to do. They were both art teachers, you know, when we were, when we were young and loved, loved art, loved music. And then coupled that, coupled that with being like the first people to graduate from college in their families and to pursue pursue their dreams and be successful. Uh, that's the kind of, uh, those are the lessons we were learning at a very young age is, is, is just how to, what is, what is success? Like what, what is that? What is hard work and what does that look like? What did your parents do um, for, their, for their respective, in their respective fields? I know that your dad played uh, flute, uh, amateur flute player, but did they have careers outside of uh, music in the arts? Yeah, yeah, I would say go? that's even almost a stretch. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> to say he was an amateur uh, flutist, um, he they would they had they had fun with um, um, just impromptu like jazz. I mean, jam sessions. I mean, it was um, it was for fun. As I mean, I don't even know if they were if he was twenty yet. So um, I don't know if he did it for a very long time, but as Anthony mentioned. They, when we were young, they were both teachers in the Chicago public, art teachers in the Chicago public school system. Um, when Anthony was born, I believe actually the year Anthony was born um, or the year after or so, um, 
our father joined the Chicago Fire Department and um, worked his way um, up the Chicago Fire Department over the years. So, yeah. South side of Chicago. So my guess is much like the inner city in Atlanta, uh, basketball and football are the uh, often seen as most desirable outlets for young black boys. Um, you two spent your time playing flute and clarinet. Uh, was it a challenge at all to uh, not get dragged into sports? Maybe you played sports at the same time. Um, like how, what was it like growing up in, on the South side um, playing classical music instead of playing sports or any other thing you could have been into. Um, either of you can take it. <laughs> Damari, you were first. Maybe you want to take it. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I loved playing basketball when I was younger. We had a basketball hoop in our backyard. And um, I was actually, I was really into it. I'm not the tallest guy in the world, <laughs> you know? Um, so it... So um, that really didn't help me out when I tried out for the, the high school team, you know, <laughs> I probably embarrassed myself. <laughs> but um, yeah, I definitely enjoyed playing, playing basketball. And there was, there was no conflict between um, the flute and any kind of sports I wanted to do because, you know, I wasn't bad at the flute. I was, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, I, and I loved it. And it was very clear. I believe I was even on a track team for no more than two weeks. Um, I wanted to do something that I loved and that I could excel at. And that was definitely um, not track and field. It wasn't, I was on a football team for maybe a week. Mm -hmm. um, uh, not even as a water boy, I was like on the, on the field. But no, I just, it's no conflict. I love the flute. And then for Anthony, um, I understand that when Damari went off to study at Curtis and you were coming up through the ranks, you were known as Damari McGill's little brother. Um, so you, you were obviously uh, inspired, uh, looked up to him as an older brother. Um, how about for you? What was your experience like? Um, I mean, I guess nobody makes fun of you if you're really good at something. And that's something I've noticed here amongst the kids at the Atlanta Music Project, just in the city in general. Um, I find that kids and families are supportive of any kid that does anything at a high level. That's one thing I've noticed. Uh, was it kind of like that for you or was, did you have, other, did you have no. any challenges at all? No, it's a good question. I actually, I had two, there were probably two different worlds. Mm. I had the world of friendships with some some uh, other musicians like around my brother's age that were also black, also from the South side of Chicago and who gave me a sense of like belonging and like, oh yeah, this music thing, all the, all the people I wanna be like, like my brother, they all do this. And you know, they, you know I was probably teased by them cause I was little and glasses and, and super nerdy too. Um, but I was playing in this group with like, you know, the older teenagers. And so that gave me a sense of like pride there were others then, just like you around you. Yeah, yeah. And then on the other hand, I did have a little bit of just an, maybe normal or maybe a little bit more than normal amount of teasing and, um, you know, getting picked on a, a little bit. Um, maybe because, you know, as my brother said, he is not um, the tallest gentleman. I'm slightly shorter than him. <laughs> so, you know, I definitely got my share of, of being picked on, you know, for not joining the football team. 
I was on the track team. I loved track. I wanted to be a track star. And I pursued all of those things. I mean, we even played tennis for like a month or two. Oh, that's right. You know? More than that. We did, uh, maybe longer. We, we, did taekwondo, we did taekwondo. Mm -hmm. You know, our, our parents really exposed us to a lot of different types of sports and athletics and, and things like that. And so for sure, there was a lot of peer pressure, like any kid, you know, in America, I feel doing, during that time, especially with it, um, in this time with the Jordan documentary coming up, right, the last you know, man. like this is, this was that those times. So, and I loved basketball too, but yeah, so I had two, the two lives, you know, the youth orchestra live, the like Chicago teen ensemble group that we played in together life that I just loved Merritt school of music, all these places and things that I loved. And then I would go to school and there were a couple other, you know, people would tease me or whatever, but I did have real friends that were like, yeah, that's pretty cool. You like that clarinet thing. Okay. You know, any, so it was a mix. And so any advice you would give to young people that are in your shoes or are, that are doing what you guys went through and they may be getting um, made fun of or, or picked on, what would you say to those young people? If you're able to, to live, you know, a, a longish, even healthy life, um, you're going to be older much longer than you're going to be younger. So if you're going through even a rough few years, um, but you have something that you, you love, you have something you're passionate about, you know uh, what you um, hope to achieve. And um, as long as you actually know what you um, you hope to achieve. You have some goal in mind. You, even if that doesn't, that doesn't happen, you will actually, uh, you will end up in a positive place. As an adult, if you're in a positive place, it, that gives you power. And so if you happen to be, you know, picked on when you're young, chances are really, really great that um, you'll be in a position of power and those people will not be when they're older. So just hang in there. That's what I would have to say. Yeah, I second that. Um, you know, the amount of determination that I saw in our house growing up was at such a high level that I really think that even if I was being bullied or teased or anything, that when I would come home I was in an environment where I had a family around me that was supremely proud of, of whatever I was doing. As long as it was positive, and as long as it was something that was pursuit, was a pursuit of, of some sort of high level of excellence. Um, and that's what I was getting day after day, every time I would leave the house and but come back home. And even if you don't have that at home, I think what my brother is talking about is, is right on which is that you sometimes have to do this all by yourself and mm. that you can decide, you can decide to not listen to people that are haters. Basically, you can decide that this is what I want to do. This is what I'm good at and I'm going to get better at it. And I'm going to go through school. I'm going to get good grades. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get great, good grades. I'm going to perform music, not maybe get a job doing something else, but, you know, just to know that, like he said, it's a very short period of time, but if you are doing the right things, you know, you almost have blinders on. You know, people talk about barriers, but mm -hmm. the, bar the barriers end up on the side of your head 
instead of right in front of your eyes if if you are driven and motivated enough young people do you hear that <laughs> stick, stick to stick to doing things well and yeah. not so much what other people are saying all right um just a quick aside before we get into the the curtis i want to talk about curtis but uh you you guys perform together on mr rogers's neighborhood uh is there still footage <laughs> oh that? yeah there it is <laughs> okay all right so y'all just go to youtube and i guess and and it's out there for, it's out there all right how did this happen <laughs> you guys performed uh, a piece for flute and clarinet by Saint-Saëns um, on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Like, how does this happen <laughs> as teenagers? Yeah, flute, clarinet, and piano. Uh, it was actually because of the, the pianist, Alan Morrison, who was a class, classmate of mine at, at Curtis, at the Curtis Institute uh, of Music. And he was friends with the, with the Rogers. He was friends with them. Um, uh, from I guess he knew them from Pittsburgh, okay. And he he, in, he introduced us. I believe I was eighteen. Anthony was fourteen, or so. And it was surreal. It was a surreal experience. It's surreal and, to even think about it. <laughs> so, yeah. And um, I haven't seen it. I'm gonna go and watch it. But was it like a featured performance, or was it woven into the theme of the of the episode, or? Well, it was, it was um, like we had our like acting debut, our public uh, TV acting debut too, because, you know, the, the um, setup was that Alan Morrison, the pianist and organist, was preparing for a concert. And we were meeting in a, a church to rehearse for this concert. So, and the whole setup of the whole week of episodes was about uniforms. What, you know, firefighters wear this kind of uniform, mailmen wear this. Musicians wear this kind of uniform, and we had tux we had our tuxedos on. So we were going we, somehow. I guess that must have been our dress rehearsal, right? Because <laughs> we were fully dressed for right. our concert happening later that day. So we had to do a little bit of acting, a little bit of improv, you oh. know. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure if you watch the video, you listen out for for yeah, formal for formal occasions. You wear formal clothes. Mr. Rogers and I, I had to because yeah, I, I couldn't say it. <laughs> it was nerve wracking and like make up stuff to say, you know, as a teenage little kid, and then to yeah. have to pl play on live TV, uh, not right. live but recorded TV. I think that was just one take. I mean, it wasn't like Man. we didn't do like yeah, multiple I, takes or anything. I don't, so. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Studio time is expensive. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but you guys. Nowadays, you play that same piece with the McGill-McHale trio, right? If I'm not mistaken. That's right. It's a little better now. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the Curtis days. So, Damari, you attended the Curtis Institute of Music. You went there at uh, about age 17. Anthony, you followed at Curtis soon afterwards. And for people watching who don't know, the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia is one of the most sought-after music schools in the world. Um, it's also one of the hardest schools to get into in the world. It's harder than getting into Harvard, harder than getting into Yale. Uh, you don't just sign up <laughs> to go to Curtis. You have to audition and be offered one of the few spots that open up every year. Uh, I auditioned twice for Curtis, uh, no such luck. But 
Um, they had one opening for bassoon every year, and that's it. Um, we have a lot of students out there, a lot of professionals that audition. So um, I want to talk about Curtis and auditioning a little bit. What was your audition? Can you guys remember what your audition preparation was like for Curtis? Uh, Damari, the, the elder <laughs> statesman. <laughs> I remember, yeah, clearly. Um, it was, I mean, I would say that uh, the route that I took to preparing for that audition is, is the route that I suggest to my students now. Um, I don't believe there should be a, a necessarily like um, define like shift in what you're doing when you're preparing for like an, uh, an audition for school. You should, be, you should be practicing a lot prior to that audition announcement. Um, so I think I just, I play things that I, that I had been working on for a while. I play things that um, were representative of my, of my level. I mean, I was, I was so focused then that I don't really remember being nervous so much, you know? I mean, I was, I was just um, so, had such a single track mind and vision of, of, of what my life um, was going to be and what I wanted it to be that, yeah, I remember going in there and I, you know, I played the music and they were joking around and I was just in awe of the school. Mm -hmm. Wow. I was just like, it was, I, you know, it, it had been in my mind for a, a while to, to, to go to this, this, to be a part of this institution. And so more than actual experience, it's just the feeling of being in that building, being in that room, um, so much history, you know, the same, same room that uh, my, my teach, one of my teachers, Julius Baker, who was part of the panel, same room that he had lessons in decades mm. before. You know, so it was a monumental experience and of course, life-changing to, to actually be accepted. Yeah. Anthony, um, yeah, um, I wanna get Anthony's uh, uh, perspective on that as well. Uh, but I remember my, my teacher at McGill University, uh, Mathieu Arel, did you, you know Mathieu, you guys know Mathieu? Yeah, Mathieu is at Curtis with me. Oh, he was, he was with you, yeah. So yeah. He, he was my teacher when I was at McGill and he would tell me all the stories about, it's similar to what Damari just said. He would say, you know, the house and I walked in there and the dark wood and the history. And I remember walking in there with the same, you know, the, the same feelings and seeing, you know, Danny Matsukawa on my audition panel and, uh, and Bernie, you know, the, the former principal bassoon. But yeah, it's got, it's just steeped in history. And uh, yeah, it was, it was an amazing experience for me. Anthony, uh, did you, <laughs> I mean, your brother's doing all these fancy things. Did you feel pressure to, to be successful as well on, on your current audition? And, and how was your preparation for it? Yeah, I mean, I definitely felt, um, I de definitely felt pressure. I mean, I, I auditioned um, like really young to Curtis. <laughs> and like my, my sophomore year was my first time auditioning for Curtis and I was at Interlochen. And, and I tried that year. And I think this pressure, I mean, didn't come from like my parents or anything or my brother to like do that. But I just had such, I just looked up to my brother so much that I just literally wanted to do everything he was doing because he was just, 
he just had so many accolades and so many, um, you know, so many successes in his life that I just, I just wanted that. Whatever he wanted really badly, I wanted it extra badly. <laughs> and, and so, um, you know, I tried that year and I didn't get in. And then I tried the next year and uh, Donald Montanaro, my teacher there accepted me. And uh, I remember distinctly wanting to practice like five hours a day, four or five hours a day at Interlochen. I was there for two years at the boarding school, art school. And, um, and so I didn't get to audition for those other schools, but I saw that my brother was, we had gone on some college tours with my brother you know, I'm to the East Coast and I got to see all those schools too and, you know, all of these things. And so this was kind of like a big dream for me. And, you know, when my brother started going to camps and things, I hadn't, I wasn't playing an instrument. So I was just kind of following, following him around, literally following the footsteps, you know, as a kid, literally when I was younger. So uh, the dream of going to Curtis and, and doing what he was doing was that, that was kind of following me all throughout most of my clarinet early clarinet years um so i remember preparing you know nielsen clarinet concerto mozart clarinet concerto a few of the rose etudes just tr traditional stuff and 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 wanting to push myself way beyond where i thought i could push myself basically you know just way beyond and so uh damara you started playing the flute when you were seven correct yes and so, Anthony, you started playing later than seven? Yeah, I started at nine. Okay, and let's, let's Damari, be, be honest. You got this little brother, you know, following your footsteps. Were you the encouraging older brother, or were you swatting him like a fly, like, get out of here, I'm trying to be like... Oh, it wasn't, it definitely wasn't get out of here. <laughs> it wasn't, it was probably um, too much in the other direction. I was probably too invested. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you I know, you know, too much of a good thing is really not, maybe not a, maybe not a good thing, but. It worked um, out. It worked out for it, me. It, it did work out for you. It did work out. It worked out very nicely for you. It's, it sounds like you were pushing him. You were, he was, you were, you were very demanding of him. Yeah, I, I took um, what he was doing um, personally. Mm. You know, I really wanted him. I mean, it was, you know, um, it was my way of, of, of expressing love. I mean, it was, I mean, it, or, or care, I should say. Like, you know, I knew he was, if he was playing the clarinet, I had very strong opinions, you know, about music making. And, um, I, I, yeah, I, I expressed those opinions, you know. Anthony, how did you, how did you, yeah, how did you take it? I mean, how did you react at that age? <laughs> Be uh, honest, Anthony. Yeah, seriously, this is going to get really emotional soon. But um, <laughs> no, really, there was, it was, it was interesting because I think there was definitely like a, a mix. I think overall what I, what I felt was, was support, you know, like if I go back and my memory is like really hazy, but that's what I really felt. But I think there were definitely times when, you know, I probably was struggling with something and I couldn't do it. And my brother knew that I could do it. And he was, you know, he was already a Curtis. He was telling me like, you know, this, this, this is how you, and I probably felt sensitive at times about that, you know, for sure, you know, and, 
you know, when you're that, when you're that young and you're both teenagers and you're brothers, especially, but not like right at the same age, four years, it's a big difference, you know? Yeah. So um, in a way, there's a lot of, there can be a lot of coaching that goes on that way, you know? So I think he definitely, my brother and I know, definitely know how to push each other's buttons. So I'm, I'm sure my button was pushed quite a bit <laughs> in those early years. Um, uh, but I think I for sure knew that like um, growing up that my brother supported me. There was no doubt about that. I mean, I just knew, especially like when I walked into Curtis for the first time and, um, and even to youth orchestra when I was the young kid in youth orchestra and he was in youth orchestra. So yeah, I was Damari's little brother. But, you know, it was in communicating in a way that, you know, he was proud of his little brother. He bragged about his little brother. You were good. A lot. <laughs> I mean, you were. Yeah. You were. So, so I knew where that came from. I knew definitely where he stood with that always. Mm. Let's fast forward now to your, the last auditions, I'm assuming that you guys have taken. Um, so the New York Philharmonic for Anthony, Seattle Symphony for DeMurray. Uh, what were those auditions like and, and how do you prepare nowadays for auditions? Um, Anthony, you want to start? Yeah, sure. Um, auditioning is so interesting, let's just say. It's uh, sometimes not a very straightforward process. Sometimes the process of auditioning for an orchestra can take years, even though the first audition might take minutes. And so my audition for the New York Philharmonic was one of those kind of auditions. It took to come to fruition and for me to get lucky enough to get into the spot. Um, I had to lose many auditions. I had to get opportunity to audition again. I had to kind of um, be runner up for that audition. I had to be in the right place at the right time and have other people like say no to the particular position. And then I had to have a committee vote for me and remember my playing from my, uh, my um, longest audition, you know, and I had to play a week with the orchestra at some time during all of those years when this position was also open. So that process was really, really, really long. And in a way, I felt like I was probably auditioning for the New York Philharmonic or whatever orchestra for that entire time. So that each audition you take is not, it's just not that one audition. It's kind of like a buildup. It's like a, a combination of all those auditions that you were rejected from, all the auditions that you won, some that you had some success in. And, um, and even my first audition that I applied to audition for the New York Philharmonic, they didn't even let me audition. And that was for associate principal clarinet there, hmm. you know? I, they said I didn't have enough experience, so they didn't even give me an invitation to come. So, you know, that's the span between those two events was probably like 16 years or something, you know, <laughs> like it was a long time in between. So that's really interesting to think about. So they, they rejected your application from a 14-year-old? Mm -hmm. uh, no, I was 20. I was like 20. I was legit. I, <laughs> I'm just I, was, I was legit, right? Yeah. <laughs> Curtis, Marlboro, you know, like maybe I'd even gotten into Cincinnati already or was about to, you know, something. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's all water under the bridge now. Right. But, but, this, but it wasn't, yeah, like you said, it wasn't a one, one and done. It was a long trial. Um, didn't they also make you play a recital? as part of the 
the audition process? I thought it I read fe- that. It felt like a recital, but <laughs> probably an hour, <laughs> hour worth of playing a whole list, a couple concerti just on stage by myself, you know, that sort of no, thing. No piano accompaniment? Uh, piano accompaniment. Okay. Um, but I did a week of like a couple different programs of subscription concerts and like, you know, it was, it was really, really interesting time. Process. You must have, uh, do you, you must have nerves of steel or, or you just love playing and you just play through the, the nerves. <laughs> yeah. You play through the nerves, but you also like practice for them and you, you do like 50, a hundred thousand mock auditions for people. So you put yourself in a situation where you've kind of felt it before and it does get easier. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that like, if I took back my experiences between my first auditions and like my last, I definitely was more comfortable in the last audition. Mm. We're going to, we're going to, we have some students of course that are going to come on and ask you guys some questions. And uh, I want to reemphasize what, what Anthony just said. Yeah. Mock auditions, 50 hundreds. And that's coming from, from a professional. So um, Damari, I feel like you've played in like, all the top orchestras in, in the country. Um, I think I remember seeing you play in Pittsburgh when I was at Carnegie Mellon. Um, I know you were in, in, uh, in Dallas uh, at the Met. And so um, what was this audition like for the Seattle job? Well, uh, by the time I auditioned for Seattle, I would say, you know, it, um, wasn't my first rodeo, so to speak. Um, I, I knew how to prepare. Um, I knew what mindset I needed to be in. All of that said, um, it, it's not e- any easier. The process is just is, is, is difficult, but um, I have a better understanding of of what I need to do to be able to present myself in the best light, to, to basically play how I played, you know, the week before when I wasn't so nervous, you know? So um, in that sense, just listening to Anthony talk, I would say that um, a lot of auditions, really, they don't, they don't work in straight lines. I had been principal of the Seattle Symphony uh, about four or so years prior. I was principal for a couple of years before leaving for Dallas. Um, and even though I was a tenured member of the orchestra before, the audition process wasn't easier. Mm. You know, I mean, it just, it was still as difficult as any audition is going to be. Um, it was even, it was actually a longer process than the first audition that I won. You know, they, they really, they made me and everyone else work for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also hearing Anthony's path to being principal of the New York Philharmonic reminded me of the fact that uh, uh, my, I had an audition for the Seattle Symphony that was one of my first auditions, if not my very, very first audition ever um, when I was in my 20s for, it was an acting position, acting second flute. And I didn't, you know, actually it was a horrible audition. It, I left my flute at home. <laughs> Did you know about this, Anthony? I'm not sure about this. <laughs> One of my very first auditions, <laughs> I left my flute at home. 
And so I called my teacher, Julius Baker, and told him, he's like, you cannot tell them this. <laughs> so he managed to, he was like, he came up with a lie for me to tell them. I told him this lie. And so I was able to borrow the principal flutist flute, which is completely different. Anyway, it really didn't go well, and I didn't get the job. So it's, it's, it's amazing and wonderful and ironic and everything that, um, that, that I'm working here. And I've worked here twice, and they've embraced me, um, being that I didn't have enough sense to bring my flute to the very first audition. Right. Well, hopefully you're bringing them to all the concerts now. You're used to it. And, <laughs> but no, much, much respect to, to you guys because people tend to see you guys on stage, but the backstory to getting to these chairs is in, incredible. Um, and and it's, I appreciate you guys sort of telling us a little bit about that process so that people uh, coming behind you have a realistic uh, you know, view of what it takes to get to where you are. Anthony, I can't, I can't have you on here and not talk about the inauguration. Um, Anthony, you performed at President Obama's first inauguration in 2009. You were up there performing with Yo-Yo Ma, Idzak Perlman, Gabriela Montero. Uh, did you and President Obama know each other before his inauguration? I know there's a Chicago tie there. No, uh, there is a Chicago tie, but no, we didn't. I, I had met uh, Yo-Yo Ma couple years before and that's kind of what was my connection to to that event um, actually just an interesting side <laughs> sure. my parents found a program uh, soon after that uh, from like the early late 80s or early 90s that my brother won a neighborhood a local award from some organization in Chicago and guess who was um, honored as a and who was at bio as a community organizer in that and the, in the same ceremony wow was was Barack Obama crazy <laughs> who who knew yeah that could that was that was so that's the kind of awards my brother was winning at, at an early age in Chicago by the way <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that's so great. that was a great that was a great experience of my life for sure um if you guys have that we'd love to put that up as uh, as b-roll um so you, you were already co-principal clarinet of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra at that time. Um, but this is even more exposure. Like the world was watching the inauguration, especially Black America. Um, did that moment, that performance, have any type of impact on you personally or on your career in general? Yeah, for sure. I mean, personally, the, the moment in, in history is I'll never forget it. And I could have never imagined that I would be there for it. So right there is pretty amazing um, for me just to have a clarinet, especially for there to be a clarinet up there in the first place. And, and for it to be me is, um, was pretty, pretty amazing. I'll never forget it. And also looking over, um, looking at, looking over at the mall, you know, that day, you know, my brother was there, my cousin, my dad, with a few other people, mm. and then seeing all those people there um, and kind of it being very surreal, you know, completely surreal is you just can't, you really can't imagine that it was it was actually taking place. And so, and the historical significance of it, you know, growing up and reading history books about the civil rights movement and hearing my father talk about, and my parents talk about their struggles in the 60s, you know, 
when they were coming up and, and then um, reading about all of those things and reading about all the past presidents, et cetera, et cetera, and then being able to be there for the moment where the first uh, black president is, is elected was, is pretty shocking. And I think stunning in a way. So yes, it had a lot, has a lot of significance. I could go on for a while about it. Yeah, that was, well, when I, when I saw you up there, I was watching it on TV and that, that just ma made my day. Um, and uh, yeah, amazing moment. Um, we are going to uh, bring on a few teaching artists from the Atlanta Music Project to get their perspective. They're, they're out here waiting. So um, we have first coming up Enrique Saucedo, who is our clarinet teaching artist. And then I'm also going to bring up Mathieu Clavie, who is our flute teaching artist. They teach um, several, well, they teach all of the, the flute and clarinet students here at AMP. And so um, we're going to take some questions um, from them uh, to you. And then we have a lot of students on, too. And so we're going to do some questions for students after this. Um, Ricky, you're going to go first, because I know yeah, you are like in between performing yeah. so go ahead and introduce yourself and then go ahead and ask your question okay hey i'm ricky salcedo um, hey, i'm ricky. a clarinet teaching artist at Atlanta music project uh very nice to meet you both <laughs> um so yeah if i had uh one question i um i have a few students who i'm super invested in um and you know they struggle with keeping that uh sense of motivation um, and that fire, you know, fueling that fire constantly to keep going um, due to like circumstances and, you know, their home life or whatever. And the situation we're in right now, obviously they're at home, you know, 24 seven. So I'm extra struggling with them to keep them on, you know, a good track, keep practicing, keep motivated. Um, so I think some of them will be watching um, today and so i would love for them to hear from you guys um any words of advice uh a motivation you know affirmations how to keep that fire fueled i think yeah. it'd mean a lot sure i think um first of all it's important to know that um, and i had somebody one of my role models say this to me a long time ago uh, well not even that long ago <laughs> but I, when I first met Wynton Marcellus, one of the first things he said to me was, um, yeah, nice to meet Anthony. I just won the Met job. He's like, oh, oh, McGill. Oh, yeah, the McGill brothers. Oh, man, I'm proud oh. of you guys. I'm proud of you guys. And it kind of blew me for, it blew, blew me out over because I, I couldn't believe that, you know, a person of this stature would be you know, who would say those words, like, I'm proud of you guys. I'm proud of you guys. I've heard of you, McGill brothers, for what you're doing and stuff. And so that's the first thing I would say is that, you know, I'll speak for my brother too. Like, we're, we're proud of the work that all the students here are doing. I mean, this is, this is an amazing program. You know, Dante, Mr. Ramo, Mr. Ramo, very, you know, happy about what you're doing and that you're in a really special place. So you are very lucky to be experiencing the amount of artistic and musical and social growth um, you're doing in this program. And so being at home, trust me, it's hard to get the clarinet and practice and all this right. stuff. So I would recommend, 
um, assigning like some doing some listening things, you know, like sometimes when I get like under inspired, I like to listen to music. I like to listen to find out some different clarinet players you want to listen to or flute players and just listen to music and understand like you can learn so much by by inspiring yourself in ways that are also not just doing the work, which is playing scales and stuff, which is great, but also doing stuff outside of the clarinet, which is listening to music you love, listening to great classical artists and discovering new pianists and violinists and all these things. So that's that's one thing I would recommend. Yeah. And just to continue continue with that idea, um, I would I would also suggest if you're listening to someone, you're watching a video, for instance, of of, of Anthony McGill playing a particular piece. I love to ask students um, to to Im like imitate Anthony McGill. Show me how Anthony McGill plays. Hmm. The reason why I think that that's it's 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 an important thing. Um, to do is because it immediately um, connects them with with greatness. You know, it actually lets them know they're able to clearly see. Um, I can do this. Anthony McGill plays like this. You know, it makes it a little bit more tangible, oh. while actually making a clear, clear um, view of. Anthony McGill is here and I'm right here. As soon as you can see that, but be very, very connected to this, yeah. then you can actually, it becomes realistic to act that you can actually get there. You know, it's a little, it's a little thing, but I think it could go a long way. Yeah, no, that, that's really good advice for sure. I'll, I'll do that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, Matsuri, uh, Flute teaching artist, flute extraordinaire um, from France. Uh, go ahead and uh, with your question for the McGill brothers. It's an honor to meet you, gentlemen. And thank you, Dante, for the nice introduction. Um, and I, I'm glad we have this conversation. I think it's one of the few positive side effects of COVID-19. Uh, the other side effect was all these three setters we can hear uh, online. So Mr. Demare, I really enjoyed yours that you played a couple of weeks ago. Well, thank it was you. The, the first time I was able to hear you live. So I really enjoyed your program. Thank you. So seeing you as uh, two amazing artists, uh, not only as orchestral musicians, but as artists, and knowing the fact you're brothers, has me wonder, um, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the book Talent Code, but what was your family uh, atmosphere in terms of music? And even beyond, beyond that being a professional activity, but what was the context of you learning your first steps as a musician until today? Um, we can do this in chronological order, Anthony, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, uh, well, we grew up in a, in a house that was really literally full of music. You know, the radio, always on, music always playing. Um, you know, not necessarily classical music, but um, I would say that our house was very vibrant in that in that regard. Um, our parents are just lovers lovers of music, and that paired with there was very proactive um, goal setting. 
when we were very young, um, our father did a series of paintings inspired by, um, you know, positive thinking. Or he, there were all of these books on positive thinking, positive mental attitude. You know, never say you can't. Mm. What do you want to be when you grow up? That paired with constant music. And then when I found the, found the flute, um, and I think this is actually really important. There are a couple of things that happened that would trigger uh, uh, what would be my trajectory. And I think because of that, Anthony's as well, two things. Uh, when I first found the flute that our mother uh, gifted to my father when they were dating, you know, I ran down to the kitchen and it's like, daddy, daddy, like, how do you do this? First thing was, oh, you just, you know, you blow across it like you blow across a Coke bottle. You know, everyone's heard that, you can experiment with that, but it was as simple as that, as opposed to, well, this is really hard. We're gonna have to find you a teacher. It's gonna be really hard. It's gonna cost a lot of money. It was so, that's one sentence right there um, was it really important for me. It's as simple as that, even though, even if it isn't, you know, that paired with never saying you can't, you know, already that's a, that's a really good start. Um, the second thing was when I, after I, you know, learned the fingerings on the instrument, uh, my mother would take out music from the Chicago Public Library, like um, musical music, like from Cats, Phantom of the, Phantom of the Opera, um, you know, uh, Les Mis, and, and I would play these things for her. The reason why I think this is really, really important was because there's all of this music in the house, including actually musicals. My, my mother loves musicals. And then some of the first melodies that I'm playing on an instrument were the things that I had been hearing around the house. So I was immediately able to connect playing an instrument with music that, that moves you as opposed to there's music here and I'm learning how to play the flute. Yes. You know, I'm, I'm playing the flute to actually create music that my mother loves. Yes. So that was, a, that was a good environment um, to, to grow up in. Ethan, thank you very much. And if I understand well, your parents were not musicians, they were just musician lovers. Uh, yes, my, our mother sings, sings beautifully. Um, it, with that, at that point, um, you know, she was teaching art, but Beautiful. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I think if I, uh, to add anything, it would be that, uh, creation, uh, was, and that sort of thing my brother was talking about the pieces of artwork. We had an art room in the house and the amount of creating that was going on in the house. My, my mother um, also was a choreographer, a dance movement therapist, um, singer, actress as well. And coupled with my dad's artistic abilities and determination to rise up through the ranks of the Chicago Fire Department to become um, a commissioner, deputy commissioner of the Chicago Fire Department. And the amount of study, the amount of work the amount of, um, we saw our parents studying a lot, you know, even as, 
whether they were teachers or in the fire department or whatever, they were constantly had a, a teacher mindset. So they were constantly doing homework, constantly doing um, self-improvement type activities that we saw a lot, whether it was studying for a test in the Chicago Fire Department to be one of the first black chiefs, you know, in the Chicago Fire Department, you know, or whether it was um, practicing um, to be, do a dance routine or maybe even the early years where I don't remember where I would go to aerobics classes that my mom was teaching or in or African dance performances or classes. Um, it's this, this creator's mindset. They were kind of like, um, it's like the entrepreneur of, of art, of life. That's what my parents were, I think. And this was definitely passed, passed down to us. Um, almost like every, every day, every moment was like a teaching moment. And that's something really important too for, for the teachers of this program, for instance, that you guys, you all are heroes, basically. Every word you say to all of these students are, you're like, you're saving them. You're not only helping them, you're saving everybody and uplifting everybody to a place because all your words are so valuable. So that's basically what you're doing in this, in this kind of program. And that's kind of what we got growing up at home. We were very lucky to have that. Um, but that, that definitely contributed to that atmosphere. What kind of atmosphere you contribute? What kind of energy are you putting out to your, to your kids and to your students? Terrific question, and um, that's amazing insight. Your parents wrote a book about this kind of stuff, didn't they? Do you want to? I'm going to start bringing up the Atlanta Music Project students now. I'm at Serum. We're going to keep you on. Thank you for time. Your students. Um, can you, you guys want to plug that book uh, while I bring up these students? Yes, my our dad uh, wrote a book. Uh, it's it's called. Do you remember the the full title? Give me one second, right. okay? Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, you, want, you don't want to get your dad's the, the, book wrong on TV. Yeah, exactly. The, the subtitle is, um, a, I think it's A Father's Journey. No, it's um, the name of the book yes. is A Father's Triumphant, Triumphant Story. Story. And um, Raising Successful African-American Men in Contemporary Urban Times. And, you know, it's... It's a book about raising us, his, his it, 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 advice, um, pointers on, um, that are based on his experience raising the two of us. It's also, I remember when he was writing this, I was, and you know, he would run some things by me and I realized actually the amazing part of this, the amazing story really is, it's not even us, it's, it's like how, did um, he, you know, growing up, you know, small town in Mississippi, then moving to Memphis, then Chicago. How did he and our mother rate, I mean, birth two professional classical musicians? There's, this is, so it, it kind of touches on his, his story and his, um, his time raising us. It's, it's a good read. I'm glad you had that book um, at the ready because you know it really it really is um, an incredible story, and um, we appreciate you sort of sharing that 
what it was like growing up and, and thank you for the kind words about the teaching artists and the Atlanta Music Project. I think we forget that we are um, big time um, inspirations and, and role models for the kids that we're serving. And so speaking of students, we have um, Lolly here who is um, one of our program managers. Um, who else do we have here? Lolly, you wanna, you wanna introduce um, the students we have here? see Audrey this I'm an oboe student at the Atlanta Music Project so Audrey she's muted now but um how many years have you been studying oboe again um I I just started a few um months ago okay, but sorry. yeah everything's going good with the oboe except for my read problems <laughs> well, yeah that's definitely tough. welcome to the club <laughs> the, re the reads, the reads are not your problem yet. Well, as a, you know, we're the ones that are responsible for your reads right now. If you, you have two of the, uh, the world's best um, classical musicians, um, you know, oboes and bassoons, we play right behind the, uh, or right beside the flute and clarinets in a symphony orchestra. And so, hey, Jada, welcome. Um, Audrey, I want you to think of a question that you can ask to these gentlemen about anything music, you know, because they um, undoubtedly will have a great answer for you. Um, Lolly, uh, I want you to ask a question too as well, but we're gonna go to, who is that? Is that um, down there, is that Jada? It is yeah, Jada. Jada, yeah. Jada, um, welcome. What instrument do you play just for the, for the McGill brothers so that they know? I play the flute. And how long have you been playing the flute for? Um, about two years. How are you enjoying it? Yes. Good. You have a question for the McGill brothers? Um, as beginning a beginner, how did you handle a mistake in like your performances? Oh, that's a great question. And I, I you know, Anthony, you know, I, I read things and so I don't want to put you on the spot. But as you as you guys answer this question, how do you deal with mistakes? And when you were beginners, um, you did a concerto competition and you like blanked when you were growing up, right? Like when you were very young. Um, maybe you can talk about that as part of your answer. Um, Jada, great question. Damar, you want to take a stab at it? Um, how, how did I deal with mistakes as a beginner? Yeah. Uh, um, he, well, didn't any, he didn't make any mistakes. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> oh, man. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's during a performance, in a performance setting, it's, you know, if you're taking it seriously, it can be hard, you know. Um, and it is definitely helpful to have someone say, oh, it's, it's okay. It's okay because the reality is that everyone makes mistakes. Everyone, everyone messes up. You get better at making your mistakes sound good, you know. You're, you, you're better at, at maybe making fewer, but everyone makes mistakes. Just it's the most important thing is to um, improve on what needs to be improved. That's all. I mean, um, like, so run, run towards the things that are causing difficulty um, in, 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 to embrace those things. And if, you, if we spend too much time being down on ourselves, then it's taking away from energy that we could be using to actually really grow. So we can learn how to either make those mistakes sound even more beautiful or to just simply make fewer mistakes. 
but everyone makes mistakes. The world, yeah. the world goes on. The sun yeah. goes down. The sun comes up. Um, Anthony. Yeah, and one of my early experiences with just kind of um, really, frankly, just bombing. <laughs> I thought at the time was when I um, I was auditioning for a concerto competition. One of my first times memorizing a piece, and um, you know I I totally uh, blanked on on the music. And I don't know for how long, obviously those moments may feel maybe like a couple seconds, but it felt like an eternity. And I think I remember coming off stage and I was really sad. I probably was crying and my mom was there. And then the conductor who ended up being um, my conductor at the youth orchestra, Michael Morgan came backstage and, and was saying, you know, why are you so upset? And I was like, well, I messed up probably. And I don't remember the details, but you know, I was unhappy to say the least, with my mistake. And he said, you know, your performance was one of the best performances today. You didn't win. You might have, I might have gotten an honorable mention or something like that. But um, he said, your performance was a really great one. You were very musical. You have so much talent. And you had played with a lot of passion and energy. And it was a great, it was great. And I, I at that moment, I realized, okay, um, I probably was not consoled. I'm not sure. I don't remember the details. But what I take from that now, every time I tell this story too, and every time I make a mistake now, is that you can still have a really good performance and, and miss some notes and miss a note. And I also took from that that I wanted to practice a little bit more. You know, maybe maybe I didn't prepare in the right way. Maybe I needed to work a little bit harder or a little bit differently and so that's how I've looked at kind of failures or mistakes in concerts. It's like a way, maybe I could do something better next time. And, um, you know, and, and try to work a little harder, maybe on something specific. So that in that case, it was memorization. I knew that maybe I need to spend a little bit more time working on that. And how old were you when that happened, Anthony? I was probably like 12, 13, maybe. And Jada, how old are you? Don't forget to unmute yourself. I'm 12. Ah, mm -hmm. there it is. See, so, nice. you know, nothing to worry about. I, I, you know, Anthony made it. So Damari made it. That's a great question. Thank you for your question. Yeah. Lolly. Yeah, I was going to say, wasn't it your birthday like last week or was it a couple of days ago? Oh, no, it's coming up. Okay, okay. You're, so you're going to turn 13 or 12? 13, yes. Yay. That's nice. Okay. So cool. Lolly um, plays the flute. She is our orchestra program associate. Um, Lolly, welcome. I'm gonna go ahead and go ahead with your question for the McGill brothers. Um, I kind of have two. I have like a more selfish question and a more selfless question for you know all the kids and students. Um, um, the question, I guess, like for me and for some of our older AMP students is just, I was wondering if you had any advice for like recently graduated college students or even like for our AMP students or recent high school graduates, just like it's a um, strange time trying to figure out like what your life direction is and um, 
you know, I, you know, if you had any words of encouragement and like, I love what I've been doing um, and I'm trying to like balance practicing and working. And um, I just, you know, if you had any like words of encouragement or advice, that would be awesome. Um, and for my students um, and for the kids at AMP, um, I guess teachers too, I was wondering how you help like students deal with performance anxiety and confidence. Um, those are some things that I see a lot. You like, we have students all the time that will say like, oh, I'm not good enough or like, oh, I can't do that or, you know, won't want to audition for our private lesson program or, you know, those kinds of things. And I think the longer they're in AMP, the more they start to feel like um, that confidence. And so I was just wondering, you know, every student's different, but if you had any like ideas for encouraging students, yeah. That's a great, great question, Lolly. And so we have um, advice for recent graduates high school and college, and then advice for performance anxiety. Uh, who wants to take these first? I'll take the first one. Um, so actually, maybe they're even connected. There's a def definitely um, uh, an opportunity, a time, this is a time to be perhaps anxious for, you know, for, for, for a lot of us. Um, I would say that um, if, you, if you have, a roof over your head and you're and and you have food then it's actually an perhaps an opportunity um your your granite time to 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 plan to to be creative um you know it it, it may be it may seem like it's hard to do that when things are are unclear when things are hard, but um, there's there's very few moments when everyone is on pause. So there's going to be some people that won't do anything. Knowing that this is a great opportunity for you uh, for all of us to come up with ideas to to collaborate. Um, to develop um, at least the seed of, of, a, of a project. I think even if it doesn't end up, for instance, making you money, the more you actually create, um, the better you get at creating. And um, the more you increase the likelihood of, of actually um, doing things that will probably that could possi possibly, um, at the very at, at the very least, um, satisfy you artistically and spiritually, and if you're really really lucky, perhaps even um, uh, make a portion of your living off of it. But this is a time where we can all we can all progress. I believe as as people, as, as, and as artists, if you're willing, you know, so let's do it. <laughs> and as far as uh, maybe I'll tackle the other question about um, performance anxiety, performance anxiety. Uh, this is something that I deal with all the time, even to this day, and something that I've had to work on almost, um, almost in a way, almost every day of of my professional life in different ways. And, um, and over the years, I've just um, tried to, in a way, work 
at telling myself positive things. Mm. So understanding that you're not always actually going to feel like doing the thing that might be positive for you. But how do you get there? If you know it's actually a good thing, probably, like how do you get there? And so part of that is, is actually um, the reverse uh, is counteracting what's called self-sabotage. So the first thing is to acknowledge and to talk about and to accept that most of us have a tendency towards, towards some sort of self-sabotage. And that means, that means that you know to take those, get into that private lesson program would be really good for you. But you're going to try to do things that don't allow you to do that program. So first off is acknowledging that that's actually a thing that a lot of people deal with like a lot of successful people deal with that in particular. And so once you acknowledge that, then you say, okay, how do I counteract that? And that is by using your inner voice, that person or that little, little voice in your head that tells you, you don't, you don't want to do that. You can't do that. You're not good enough to do that. You can't go to college. You can't get good grades. You can't do anything because of whatever reason. And sometimes it's not a voice in our head. Sometimes it's a voice outside of our heads. Mm. Sometimes it's people telling us these things. So it's about acknowledging that, saying hello to those folks, and then looking at yourself in the mirror every day and saying, actually, no, I can do that. And this is how I'm going to do it. And I do it because I'm actually really good enough. You know, I'm good enough to do it. I have somebody encouraging me to do it. Maybe my teacher maybe my friend, maybe my brother, maybe my cousin, somebody out there, somebody else's parent, somebody else's teacher is encouraging you to do it. You learn to listen to them. And then you learn to try to change your inner voice every day to say, you know what, I am good enough, I'm positive enough, I'm gonna work hard for this and I'm gonna do it. Even if it feels scary. And once you, get, once you do that once, you have to do it the next day. And then you have to do it the next day because those voices don't leave, you know, you just have to be able to hear them telling you that you can't do it. Okay. Most of the time we're not even aware that that's a thing, yeah. but it is a thing. <laughs> and a lot of people have it and you just got to listen to it and then say, okay, bye-bye. I'm going to do this because it's good for me. And I know it is. Mm -hmm. I love it. That's so good. Yeah. For me, for, Definitely, I can think of a lot of students that would benefit from that a lot. Self, the, the self affirmations. Great question, Lolly, and, and thank you both, gentlemen, for your answers. Audrey, do you have a question for the McGill brothers now? Um, I was thinking of one. Um, so, do you guys have any famous musicians that you admire and want Great to? Great question. Great question. And what was the end of the question, Audrey? And why? Oh. That's it. <laughs> Anthony? Oh, uh, yes. I, I admire um, lots of different musicians, first of all. Uh, but Yo-Yo Ma would be one of them. Uh, because, and that's an easy one, of course. It's like almost cheating <laughs> to take take Yo-Yo, but um, he does so many things creatively that I respect and look up to. 
Um, he has a, he pays attention to all things that have to do with with reaching people and education, which I, I really love. And he's just such a passionate musician, just gives almost like a hundred percent all the time, it feels like, it sounds like. And that sort of energy is really inspiring. And his, his uh, spirit in the world is pretty, really strong because of it. Yeah, there's so many, there's so many. Um, the first person that pops, pops in to my mind is, um, I'm a big fan of, uh, of Claire Chase, uh, flutist. I just, um, uh, I admire how, uh, how grand her, her thinking is, her dreaming is, and how she, um, she is, the things that she does artistically um, with, and in particular with the amount of, of commissioning, Claire Chase is a, is a, is a, is a wonderful flutist that um, is really the premier um, new music flutist out there. Um, but just the amount of commissions, the amount of time focused on um, drastically expanding the flute repertoire and the things that she's doing to connect that um, with the world at large. Um, is I find is ad admirable. So I, I mean, I really, really look up to people that are able to do things that will have a positive impact some way on, on a community. Matsir, Lolly, Jada, Audrey, thank you for being here with the uh, McGill brothers on the Next Movement podcast. We appreciate your time and your questions. I'm going to uh, continue on with the McGill brother just for a few moments. I have some, I have a popcorn round, a lightning round, and um, and then we're gonna we're gonna close it up. Thank you Thanks. all. Bye. Thanks. Bye bye. Take care. All right. And it's because I'm in this seat, I get to ask questions that I know many students want to ask you. Um, ideal age to start playing the flute to be good enough to study it in college. There isn't a specific age. You, uh, um, I started when I was seven. Doesn't mean you need to start when you're seven. You can start when you're 11, 12, 9, 10. Just um, do it passionately. Have, do it consistently. And, um, and you, you'll do well. Anthony, do I need to take private lessons? If you haven't already and you've been playing for a little while, yes. Damari, your favorite thing about teaching is? It's seeing my students and hearing my students get better. Anthony, your least favorite thing about teaching is? That's a harder one, sorry. <laughs> when I teach a student that, is, that does not love music, which doesn't happen very often. Damari, a musician you would most like to perform chamber music with? Um, wow. I, 
I mean, I'm, I'm like literally, there's so many names. That lightning round is supposed I just to be fast. Rolled, okay. Um, <laughs> dead or uh, alive. Yeah. Uh, oh, dead or alive. I like this. Um, okay. Give me, all right. Five, four, right. three, two. Oh, um. Mm, okay, maybe Daniel Berenbaum on the piano. Ooh, very good. Good one. Good Anthony, one. if I want to be the best and I'm in high school, how many hours should I be practicing each day? Four hours a day. Damari, complete this sentence. I should only pursue a career as a performing musician if... If you love it enough to, to be okay with the failures. Anthony, when picking a college, um, if I'm a music student and I'm picking a college to study music, should I go for the best teacher fit or the most prestigious school? You should go to the school that... <laughs> Oh, goodness. Um, yes, you should go for the, um, the, the best teacher. About that. Damari. These the are hard questions. These yeah, are they hard. are. They are. But these, these are the questions, these are these the questions are, that like, students ask, right? Like, these are going to end up on the internet, and someone's going to be like, he thinks this. Right. Like, yeah. Wait a second. <laughs> Give it no. some thought. Okay. It's a light. It's a lightning round, right? This is we're putting the McGill brothers on the spot. Thank you for that because clarification. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Disclosure. You know this. This. You know. <laughs> Damari, the key to being able to play fast is to practice beautifully slowly first. Anthony, the key to being able to tongue fast is to be able to tongue with lots of air and lightly. Last question, you guys can both take it, Damari first. As an aspiring musician, I should always remember that. We're very lucky to be able to make music that inspires, that, that brightens moods. We're very fortunate. Anthony, as an aspiring musician, I should always remember that. If you love it enough and express fully, the performance can be good enough. Excellent. Great job on the, the popcorn round, lightning round. I appreciate that. That was, that was stressful. <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. Yeah. yeah. So that was stressful. Um, two, two final questions. Um, well, only two and a half, but um, then we're going to close it out. We, <laughs> these are going to be easier. You take your time, you can be thoughtful. Um, it takes a supreme amount of ability, confidence, and poise to be a principal wind player in a major symphony orchestra. Both of you have these attributes, obviously. But still, do you, do you ever wake up and pinch yourselves and say, how did all this happen? Like, I can't believe I get to do these wonderful jobs for a living. Absolutely. I mean, I think we're, we're both living, living our dreams. I mean, so every day of our, of our lives are, are like literal dreams come true. 
That's no question. How about you, Anthony? Yeah, same. I think um, the the older I get and the more days I get to do what I do for a living, um, the more grateful I feel uh, for for it all. Last questions. Um, Anthony, you can go first. Our mission at the Atlanta Music Project is to empower uh, young people to reach their, their best selves through music. What empowers you as an artist, Anthony? I, I think that reaching people through music and through teaching music empowers me every day. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't have, I couldn't have asked for, uh, to do anything else in my life. And for you, Demurray, what empowers you as an artist? I would also connect it to, to teaching. I feel that um, it's inspiring to, to witness progress in, in individuals that you care about. Um, and I re recognize that, that I need to constantly be the best version I can of, of myself as an, you know, as 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 a person, um, but in their case, as especially as a, as an artist, as a musician, um, so that I'm not simply um, preaching; that I'm actually practicing what I preach, and I believe that act also will help them to be the best versions of them, uh, the best version of an art, of a flutist that they can possibly be as well. So that really that really inspires me. And then finally, the podcast is called The Next Movement because I'm sitting here in the one-year-old uh, performance hall of the Atlanta Music Project. And when we um, decided to do a capital campaign to raise money for the building, we called it The Next Movement campaign. We see this space as the next iteration, the next 10 years of the Atlanta Music Project. What is the next movement for Anthony and Damari? I think my next movement is to um, is to try to continue to um, live in a healthy way, in a happy way, and continue to make music. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I, I I I love the life that I have. And um, I would like to do everything in my power to continue to uh, not only appreciate it, be grateful for it, uh, but to not allow the life that I have to stop me from actually growing and in, in, in being better, being a better flutist, being a better human. Terrific. Appreciate the time, Anthony McGill from New York and Damari McGill from Seattle. We really appreciate you being here for taking the time to answer the questions from our faculty and from our students. Um, I wish you both all the best and I'm looking forward to seeing you perform in person when we can again. Thank you. Hey, thanks, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us.